Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so happy to be joined in the Little Church Studio this day by my dear friend and colleague, Mr. Eric Balmer. Now, Eric Balmer got, got, a, got a lot to his, his, his story, his background, uh, but one of the things just up front, I know Eric from Pacifica Christian High School, where he teaches in the history department. I mean, I say history department, it's, it's you and I. Um, but Eric is, is, uh, is a graduate from Cal State Long Beach where he got his bachelor's. He also got his master's in philosophy from Cal State Long Beach. He got a master's in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary where I also went to seminary, although not quite at the same time. And he is about, I mean, like right on the edge of all goodness to finish his PhD and get the final stamp of approval. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Congratulations ahead of time. Yes, I'm seeing him praying to Jesus uh, for that final approval. Uh, so Eric Balmer joins us today. And and Mr. Eric Balmer, I I wanted to start our first sort of pod. I, I, I hope you will be back for many more. I wanted to start the first one, though, by just talking to you about yourself, about how you came to know the Lord, about how you walk with the Lord. Um, in my experience, guys our age don't stick with the Lord. Um, a lot of guys I knew maybe in late teens, early 20s, were excited about the Lord. There was a season in which it was like a thing to be up to. Um, but then over time, just sort of drifted away or just sort of became sort of spotty, sort of casual Christians in the mold of so many others. Um, but what I've always admired about you as a brother in Christ is that the Lord is central in your life that he's central to how you approach being a father, that he's central to how you approach being a husband. You're an elder at your church in Long Beach. You are someone who walks with the Lord and would walk with the Lord no matter what was going on around him. You don't need to be talked into it. It's something that is at the center of who you are. And I feel like that's a vanishing thing for guys uh, as they get into their later 30s and as they keep growing and take on more things in life. Um, and so I want to just ask you about how you got to be a strong Christian who was committed to the reality of walking with Jesus in a time in which it's not that popular to do, and certainly not anymore if it was before. So welcome to the studio. Thank you for being here, Mr. Eric Balmer. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, I want to know, like, basically a little bit about how you were raised, how you grew up. Were you raised in the church? Were your, were your family church-going people? Were you, they in ministry? Was there, was there something there from the earliest age that connected you that way, or did this unfold a different way? How did you sort of come up uh, as a person in the world? I was raised in an, a secular home. Oh, you were? Okay. Yes, yes. I honestly, because a lot of these questions I genuinely have, because I yeah. don't know every piece here. I was I was born in Long Beach, but my parents bought their first home in Fountain Valley, so I was sort of a product of suburbs. I don't recall my parents ever talking to me about God or mentioning mm. God. My father, I don't believe, he wouldn't talk about religion, so I, I take it that he's an atheist. I don't know. To this day, you're not sure? Not sure, Okay, yeah. That's a whole other, uh, there's a reason that sure, I'm not sure, sure, sure. but... Um, so when I was a kid, you know, I was just raised in a home that was just a home. I, I, I was raised in a broken home. Uh, my parents had a very difficult uh, relationship. My parents ended up finally splitting up when I was 14. And so so I don't—they didn't talk to me about God. They didn't talk to me about spiritual things. I just kind of existed. I lived on a great block where there was lots of kids. There was I always had something to do. I lived in a cul-de-sac. And, um, so if I would have, you know, said something like, oh, look at all those beautiful stars, you know, my dad would have said, yeah, they're beautiful. He wouldn't have said something like, oh yeah, that's the, you know, the handiwork of God or anything like that. So my, my, my imagination or my worldview was not informed by anything transcendent. Mm. Um, in fact, I remember a time when I was in uh, elementary school uh, I, the library of my school was sort of in this big room, indoor room, carpeted room where they did, uh, where they did assemblies. 
And for whatever reason, I think I must have wandered over in the middle of this room. That the, the, the library was kind of tucked to the side of it. It was a huge room. Um, but, and I walked right into the middle and it was just the carpet. I believe the carpet was orange and, um, I was sitting Indian style by myself. Actually, I probably, can you even say that? Maybe that was was, cross leg, cross leg, (laughs) my back. Yeah. uh, I, yeah. Um, gosh, I said something the other day that I didn't even realize was bad. And so anyways, um, so I was sitting cross-legged in this, in this auditorium and I was reading the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And I remember I was by myself and I remember just being absolutely like just mesmerized and in awe and in shock when Aslan came back to life because uh, I didn't have a concept of, of something coming back to life. Now, at that time in my life, I also didn't even know that Aslan represented Christ, I was just like, oh my gosh, this lion who I loved came back to life and it was magical for me. It was powerful. Mm. It was super captivating. Um, so, so that was kind of a way in which I first sort of experienced something beyond, you know, the here and now. Um, and so anyways, the reason How that old I, were you? I think, I believe that was, elementary school, late elementary school, mm. probably fourth or fifth grade maybe. Okay. But what ended up happening for me was um, a, a, a family moved into my neighborhood and they were Christians. Mm. And so, and there was a, a guy that was became one of my good friends. And so I started becoming friends with this family. He was one year older than I, I was and we became friends. And, you know, so anyways, I started going to church with him and being exposed to things. And at that, at that time in my life, I just wanted to have fun, play games. And, uh, you know, I think I liked some cute girls and stuff too, you know, yeah, it was probably, uh, there wasn't a hunger for God or anything like that. That happened to me in, in high school, though there was a sense of which I believe that some kind of seeds were planted when I was exposed to that stuff, uh, as a, as a younger, younger boy. So that's kind of how it happened. And then, um, when I was a freshman in high school, I was, I was just out at lunch one day and a girl that, um, a girl invited me to church. Uh, and, and I, I, and I remember when she invited me, I just thought, ah, I don't really want to go. It was that thing where I had this mentality where you need to go. I just wanted to get the guilt off my shoulders, right. like, you know, sort of punch the ticket and go. And so I went and her and her sister picked me up and I remember getting ready that Sunday morning. My mom even gave me a couple bucks to put in the offering, hmm. you know, cause my mom knew some of these cultural, you know, things that sure. you do. And I went to church and we were late, which, and their youth group met first. So we, we went straight to the youth group. We were late. So when we, when we came into the room, we, everybody looked and saw us there and obviously this new kid, there's probably like 15 kids in the group. And the youth pastor was like, Hey, what's going on? And it was this really nice guy. And, um, he was really compelling to me. And, um, and then I was afterwards, I thought, Oh, I really like this. Hmm. And then I just started going to this small little Presbyterian church. And I think it was in Huntington beach. And that's kind of probably when I started really following Christ and, I got a student Bible. Nice. Um, and did it have a wave on the cover? I don't recall. I remember it was. I think it was black and red. Okay, mine was black and aquamarine, or had the wave on. The okay, cover. I think I think I, I think mine Bible. was a little. Mine was Generation One. Oh, um, <laughs> you're not that much older. Yeah, but I I uh, I read the Bible like crazy. Okay, you are now. I didn't know when, but you yeah. are a reader. So so far, you've already have two moments now. Yeah, you are one of the most voracious readers I've ever met in my whole life, maybe the most. Okay, yeah. So so you you got a student Bible, some kids, oh, okay, well, whatever. Yeah. And you, like, read it. Oh, like crazy. <laughs> I mean, just... Cover to cover? What are you just doing? You're just non-stop, hopping around, popcorn. Non-stop. Magic, just I just non-stop. wanted to understand. I read everything. I, I, I just, I would read the Old Testament, too, and I just, I, I knew it was weird and bizarre. I didn't judge it. I mm-hmm. just... I just thought, okay, I just want to try to figure this out and understand it. So I just read the Bible like a madman. And, um, yeah, I, I, that, that was for a long time. Are you asking a bunch of questions or is this nope. like 
person. This is deeply just like me. You. Just me <laughs> upstairs you. in my bedroom. Let's go. I think my parents thought I became a crazy man. <laughs> um, so my parents were kind of my parents split up too. So I was I was this is very, all around the same time. Yeah. Right? So was I like was high school fourteen fifteen. Yeah. So when I was in high school, when I was a De- it was December. I remember taking my dad to the airport and saying goodbye to him, and he flew wow. to Switzerland. And so I was sort of, uh, yeah, I was in a tender, confused, hurt place. And so I, I, I've always liked being alone. I'm comfortable in my own skin. So um, I would just be in my room, and I'd rather be playing the guitar or, or reading the Bible quite a bit. I mean, I still had a real active life, too. I had lots sure. of friends, and I was a typical boy that liked to just go have fun all the time. But I spent a lot of time reading the Bible. Wow. Yeah. And now if you don't mind, like this, this moment of taking your dad to the airport, what, what, how does it lead to that? I mean, I understand you said it was broken to begin with for a long time, Yeah. but then it comes to, Hey, there's a decision that's made. Does he sit you down and tell you, Hey, this isn't going to work out or I'm going to be, well at that point in my life. So my parents had a rocky relationship from when I was a child, I experienced the ups and downs of of you know them splitting up at one point when I was in I left second grade early and moved to Italy with my mom and I lived in Italy for a while um, because my parents had split up and my mom was uh, had a, a Italian boyfriend and I lived in an apartment wow. uh, with my sisters uh, on top of a hill overlooking Lake Como Dang. in an apartment complex and I slept on a cot and I had this bizarre reality um, you know, a lot of people, you think of Como, I guess where George Clooney lives and it's right, paradise and it is beautiful. beautiful. But for me, it was just like, oh, I just wanted to be back uh, on my block playing wiffle ball right. and eating hamburgers. Right. Like I really didn't. Um, but so my, my parent, and then they ended up getting back together and then eventually, you know, it went south. So it was kind of all over the map. It was always yeah. all over the map. Yeah. And so, um, when my parents split up, uh, when I was a freshman, my dad went to Switzerland in December. Why? And I think uh, he went to Switzerland because he sold his half of the house to um, uh, the man that my mom ended up marrying, and um, who is my stepfather now. Uh, sold his half of the house. It was the first time that he had sort of come across some money in a long time. My dad had been unemployed for a long time, and really was struggling there. And so I think he was depressed and wanted to just go to Switzerland and ski. Just literally just something totally yep, different. Just I, he wow. had the ability and the means to do something that was outside of his means and ability for a long time or for, for that matter ever. And he uh, went to Switzerland and rented an apartment. And so, so the idea was he was going to go heal maybe, or just clear his mind, whatever, come back, and re- reboot his life, and then he ended up staying for, for good. So so there was a point in my life where I would visit my father quite a bit in Switzerland uh, when I was in high school, but, you know, I was, it was, it was hard. I was, I was... Were you guys really close before? Yes. Before that, yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, it was a very, very difficult time, and, and at some level, that's when I became a Christian. People could call that a weakness or a crutch, whatever. Um, but you know, I, I remember praying when I was a child, I mean, a young boy, I mean, I was 14, 15, 16, 17. These is, this is when I would pray these things. God, your word says that you are a father of the fatherless. I need you to be a father to me right now. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes I would cling to God to be my father. Um, when I was in a lot of pain and confusion now, I would, I would argue that, I mean, God has been faithful to me and God has sustained me, right? In certain respects, um, I'm a survivor in the sense that I'm not paying back what I've received. Right. However, God is not somebody you can play basketball with Mm. and God doesn't hug you tangibly apart from the body of Christ. And so, so yeah, I mean, in certain respects, I was like, okay, I really felt sustained by God, but on the other hand, I was like, I really, really wish that I could just be hugged by my dad, Right. you know? So and you said you would visit him often, at least for a while? Yeah, the beginning, it was twice a year, winter and summer, and then it sort of petered out to once a year, and then, 
And then there, there was a phase in my life where I didn't see my dad for 18 years. For 18 years? 18 years, yeah. And was that like someone made a decision or it was just a loss of communication that just never got resumed? It was, um, it was a, uh, that relationship atrophied um, and not because I wanted it to. You know, I made all the le- all the all the volleys his way, ne- mm. then they were never returned. Um, so what would it, so the last time I had seen my father um, was when I was dating my wife, my wife's from Northern Ireland, and we went to we went to England and Northern Ireland and Switzerland, and we spent a week in each area. And I wanted to meet her family because I was serious about her. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to meet my dad. At that point in my life, I knew my relationship with my, with my dad was different, but I thought that there was still some kind of a relationship. So it made sense for me to introduce her to my dad. Right. So we spent a week there. And then, um, and then, you know, life goes on. And finally, 18 years later, I had not seen my dad in, in the flesh. I'm mm-hmm. we're talking no letters, no emails, no pictures, nothing, right? And so I realized, like, I needed to go over there. And so I went over there a few years ago and to confront him. And I flew to Switzerland and went over there with a posture of humility and openness and grace. Mm. And I just thought, maybe there's something that I'm going to hear from him that will allow me to understand, you know, see things through his eyes, live through his shoes. And then I'll be like, Oh, I see why you went offline. Now, meanwhile, my dad, between these 18 years, I got married. He didn't come or acknowledge it. Right. Um, I had three children who he's never met Hmm. or talked to, or, you know, so, um, I, I tried so hard, you know, to, to even, Hey, I'll fly you out. You know, come, you know, come, I'll fly you out, come stay with us, come meet the kids, da, da, da. So anyways, at some point I just couldn't, I, it, I was, when I had my children, it really kind of like kind of blew the lid off of things and made me feel it again because you want your yeah. dad to know your kids. So yeah. I went over there to try to maybe understand and, but also to confront him and say, Hey, why'd you go offline? You know, what happened? And, um, it just went really bad. <laughs> was so, he, he was expecting you, but didn't know you, didn't... I mean, so, well, I mean, what happened was, so I, I obviously, so I was in Belfast, Ireland, and then I got up early one morning and flew to Switzerland, flew to, flew to Zurich, get on a train. It's a long day. I take mm. this train all the way across Switzerland. He lives out, you know, he lives out, out in, 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 sorry, um, in St. Moritz, which is sort of above Italy by, uh, in the Alps and all that. I've been there many times. It's gorgeous. Mm. I mean, if you just Google St. Yeah, Moritz, yeah. it's insane. Yeah. Um, I've skied those mountains. I've had many experiences there. I know that area. Um, but you know, you t- take this long train ride there and I'm super nervous and I'm, I'm just like, even as the train, like, so as I went across Switzerland, by the time you get closer to San Moritz, you know, more and more people have gotten off the, the train. And by right. this time it's like just <laughs> me. Right. And I'm pulling into San Moritz and I'm, and I'm, and I'm thinking like, this is what, what am I doing? You know? And I got there a little bit early and I was waiting and I was nervous and I was like, well, I even recognize him. And then, you know, I see him and, um, you know, we, we meet and, and then I, you know, I spend four days there or three or four days there. And at one point in time we were, I, I, I need, I needed this moment, right. I was like all kind of surfacey and fake for a long time and, and, um, and, and bizarre. And, and then at one point we were on this bike ride through the mountains or whatever. And then we came out to this sort of more flat area and we were walking the bikes and I was like, this is it. And I asked him, you know, and I had rehearsed in my mind what he could have possibly said to me. Mm. And none of those responses are what he, 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 he said. So he basically said, um, uh, that when I was, I had, I had major back surgery in 2006, being a tall man, a six foot five. You're talking about yourself. Yeah. So six foot five, six, five. Yeah. Big, big dog. 
um, I had major back surgery back then, and and I don't remember this, but I, I know that this is something I would say. He wasn't making this up. He said, he said, I said, you know, why did you go offline? And he said, well, you know, when you had your back surgery, you asked me if, um, if I had any back problems in, in my, in my family or in, in my, and if I had any back problems and, and I told you, no, my back's fine. I don't have any back pain. And, and then you, and then Eric, you said to me, well, then, um, I guess we don't share the same genes, something like that. And I was like, wait a minute, what? Mm. And then, and I said, you know, come again. And he said, well, you said that, you, you know, we don't share the same genes. And I said, are you, wait, are you suggesting that I said to you that you're not my dad? And he goes, well, that's what you said. And I was like, whoa, hold on. No, that's not, that's not what I said. I said, you know, look at look at look at you, look at me. I'm six five. You're not. You have dark hair. I don't. That's not how genes work. I was just saying I don't have maybe that particular trait, right? right? Um, so it was this weirdly bizarre stretch of logic, right? Where he was saying you he was, dismissed he, me. Correct. As your dad. Yes. Wow. That I had inferred to him strongly. Hey, you're not my dad. Whoa. Now, uh, being a father of three children, had my son ever inferred something <laughs> like that? I would have immediately said, hold on, are you suggesting <laughs> are you that saying? I'm not your father? <laughs> and I would I would go to the ends of the earth to prove that yeah. I was and follow not that. just be Let's like, follow that up. I'm just going to go ahead and take that inference <laughs> and run with it and not talk to you. Wow. So that was a part of the response. There was other things too. I won't, you know, and it was just like, oh my gosh, this is not what I was hoping it would be. And so that's... I don't know how we went there, but yeah, that's yeah. kind of part of that story. Yeah. Well, and, and when I when I think of you, I think of you as as a dad. I think of I think of you as a father. I think of you. I think of how much that means to you. I think of that being a, such a central part of your story. The way you talked about knowing that the Lord is your father, being sustained by the by the promises, by the knowledge, by by the word about the Lord being our heavenly father, your heavenly father. But as you said, and I also know you're like a, you're a very sort of tangible, concrete, you know, guy, like you're very present. You're very, you know, like you, you want to look someone in the eye. You want to, you know, you want to be able to see what's going on and be able to connect with people. And so it does really strike me just the way you say, I know this about the Lord, but I was just missing that like contact, that contact thing. Now, when you became a father, um, was it, it was your boy that was yep. born first. I mean, when you became a father, what was that? Was that totally just world altering? Was that something you had just been looking forward to and was just sort of a natural sort of thing? Like, how did that strike you when you first became a father? It was... Um It was where my, my heavenly father did touch me. It is where I got the embrace that I was looking for. Um, it took us a while to have our, uh, a child, and I prayed for a son, uh, not because I preferred a boy over a girl, but because I wanted to make right what went wrong in my life. So I asked for a son. And... Um, I prayed for a son. I prayed, never in my life have I prayed for something more in my life than a child. And there was a long battle. It was a long journey. That's another story. But it wasn't like, okay, let's have a kid and let's, let's go. We had to, it was a battle. So when my son was born, I was at Fuller at the time. And um, when, when my son is called, is named Simon. And um, the reason I named him Simon is it means he has heard. Mm. And... So Simon was, when Simon was born, I imagined that the night, I, I just figured I'm a sort of an emotional dude. I cry quite easily. I thought I'd be in tears, but I didn't cry when Simon was born. He's born at, at 1053 at night. The next morning in the hospital, um, I was taking, a, I was taking Hebrew at the time with Jeremy Smoke. God Ooh, bless him. Yeah. What a what a what a teacher the man himself um but i was i was 
I had a, a Hebrew exam coming up, and I was practicing my translations, and Beth was sleeping, Simon was kind of in that little thing, you know, in the hospital, and I was at, sitting on the chair, and it was pretty early in the morning, and I was I was practicing translating the Hebrew, and it, it happened to be Psalm 23, mm. and I, I just stopped translating it and then just got out my te- English text and read Psalm 23, and, you know, the, the, there's these passages that just jumped out at me, and it, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of many. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Uh, That that part I remember really jumping out at me. You anoint my head, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, um, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I was reading that passage, and I just started, tears just started falling out of my eyes onto the text. And I, I, uh, I was looking at my boy, and I went and picked him up, and it was as if God said to me, you feel me? You feel my hand on your back right now, Eric? I've always been with you. I, I, I'm your father. And, and it was this tangible, a way in which I was getting that tangibility that I was longing for. And it was a beautiful, beautiful moment in my life. My wife was asleep and I was holding Simon and I was experienced an embrace of the Father that took a long time to get to, but it was worth it. It took a long time. Wow. A lot of doubt. Yeah. A lot of str- a lot of struggle. How many years were you guys praying for a kid? Ten years. Ten years. Yeah. So so my son, I've been married twenty. My son's ten. My son's wow. Ten. Yeah. And. We got to pick up a couple things. Um, how'd you meet your wife? Northern Ireland. Yeah. Northern <clears throat> Irish people don't just walk by in Long Beach. Yes. Right? My wife, my wife, that's right. My wife went to uh, university in York, England. She's Northern Irish, but she traveled over to England and went to York. She was a violin major. When she finished uh, school, she was at a conference and it was a gathering and there were some vineyard worship people there from the Anaheim Vineyard. Sure. Uh, my wife was sort of raised in a charismatic background, and so I think she was at some kind of comp- some kind of conversation with a group of people after one of the events, and she they were like, "Well, what are you gonna do?" And she's like, "I don't know." And they said, "Well, why don't you come be a worship intern at with us in Anaheim Vineyard?" So my wife moved to Anaheim Vineyard from from York. yep, and <laughs> and uh, decided to be a worship intern, and she was working at the church and I was a touring musician at the time and we were using, I didn't go to, to the Anaheim vineyard. I was on, on sort of the other side of the spectrum. Pretty a little, little more high church. Not well. Yeah. I was more, a, I was a, I was an Orthodox Presbyterian, Presbyterian at the time. <laughs> OP. <laughs> yeah. oh, uh, I'm no longer an Orthodox Presbyterian. Okay. Um, but I was, uh, I went to a very, uh, very conservative church at the time and so, but I was a musician and the Anaheim Vineyard was allowing us, we knew some guy there and he, they were letting us use their sanctuary to work on our show. We had a full production and trucks and blah, 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 light shows, stages, all this stuff. And so we, you, there was a lot of rehearsing that you had to do. They would program the lights and all this stuff, whatever. <laughs> and so while we were th- there during the daytime interacting, we were um, building stuff, getting ready. That's where Beth and I crossed paths. And then we met there, and then we ended up. Um, I went on this big tour, and then three months later, when I came back, we we went on a date, and then we got married exactly one year later. Because nice. I don't play. You don't play. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah. now, now, we also picked up 
uh, a real fun part of your story, which is you were a touring mu- musician, right? Indeed. Now, there are different kinds of touring musicians, right? Yeah. But you, you, if I may say so, you were, uh, I don't want to say semi, I want to say famous? <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know. I mean, okay, when I in was certain a kid, worlds, certain worlds. When I was worlds, a kid, people, okay, in, the yeah. world, in a world that I lived in. When I was a kid, uh, must be so high school years. Uh, I'm in Connecticut, and um, so we're in like you know mid late nineties, um, and and uh, you know we would go my church youth thing. We would go to like Summerfest in Colorado, or you know they would do yeah, these yeah. things, right? And at one of those, I believe, um, one of the headline acts was a little band called Plank Eye. Indeed. And uh, I didn't know it, yep. but that's you. And <laughs> and you didn't know that we would be future humanities and teachers. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> In arc, Newport Beach, the California. Of, the arc of history is so weird. It um, is. Okay, now, if, for people who don't know, Plank Eye was one of the top uh, sort of, how would you say, just Christian rock, Christian... It's not punk. You guys are pretty melodic, right? Sure. I mean, you got you know, you like you like to sing. You, you don't just you're not yeah. just shouting. There's a whole uh, there's a whole thing. We were one of the yeah. I mean, we were you one were of the groundbreaking like tooth and nail records. You were like, this was an era in the '90s in particular in yes. which I just remember people being like, hey, like this is this is good music, and these guys are Christian. And it was like a real fun scene. It was just like a really cool thing. For yeah. young folks like myself at the time, I, you know, my sisters, I just remember like our whole world. You know, the yeah. world of the youth group was like very aware of like Newsboys, Plank Eye, Jars of Clay, right? Like yeah. all sorts of these kind of bigger name acts. And lo and behold, you are Plank Eye. Well, I'm. I'm. Yeah, You're one I'm, of yes. Plank Eyes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Plank Eye just kind of fell into my lap. I. It was. Uh, because you, you're not even a Christian until you're 14, 15. Yeah, so Plank, I, I, I and then suddenly was you're a Christian my freshman year of college. Musician. Yeah, I was. I played in high school bands and stuff and all that, and and right. so I knew. So, but yeah, that was my freshman year of college. What happened in Plank Eye in retrospect, which is kind of, I'm kind of cool at some level, is. We didn't know it at the time, but what happened with Tooth and Nail Records was there was this brief sort of window of time. I don't know how, I don't know when you would date the beginning or the end of it, but Tooth and Nail Records was this scene that happened and it was something unique and it was something special that happened in Christian music. It was the first time you kind of had this like non CCM, a whole bunch of bands, diff- di- different circuit, doing music that people you know, kind of liked, I guess, or, and, and so now it's, I look back and I think, wow, I was part of some kind of little mini scene that came and went because at some point in time, Christian music became worship. Right. Right. So I don't understand all the dynamics because I have been out of that scene for such a long time. I mean, the last plank I show I did was in 2001. Okay. So that was a long time ago. Uh, so, but the nineties and then it probably went on a little bit after that. I don't know when I left Christian music or that, that thing, I left it. I didn't, I had nothing to do with it. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I just moved on or whatever. Did you, I mean, so it got, it got big, right? Did, was it like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. This is too much about something else. Or is it just like that season's done? Oh man, that's. I mean, I've actually told that story on a on another podcast, like the oh, whole I've, deal, okay. um, which now. is actually uh, it's actually kind of an interesting story, even if you don't even know what Plank Eye is. Uh, just at some level, there's a there's a narrative to it. Uh, really, yeah, um, we were done. Um, the I, it wasn't like I have to go. Um, we fulfilled our contract. Lead singer um, bailed. Like uh, there was drama, right? It was classic uh, band. Yeah, drama. there was drama um, before that. You know, we carried on for a while, but um, you and Luis, who also me, yeah, in me school. and Luis, this is so weird. The best, man, the best man in my in my wedding. Let's go. Yeah, he's he's the best. <laughs> he is the best. He's the best dude ever. <laughs> um, so yeah, we yeah, it was just done, and um, 
but some so this is what I don't understand but I know that this happened you don't there isn't like a Christian underground scene anymore right and like Plank Eye wasn't super underground we were kind of like there was CCM and then there was like really gnarly hardcore like punk Christian yeah, bands yeah, yeah. and Plank Eye was kind of somewhere in the middle there right we weren't yeah, yeah, we yeah. were like you know we were but but we just happened to be one of the first five bands that signed to Tooth and Nail Records so we were part of this thing and then um, yeah, it was cool. It was total. It was it was a uh, give me the give me the highlight. Give me the highlight of that of that season. Give me the highlight experience. Oh wow. Um, or okay, well, give me. I, I mean, I could I could give us I could give a highlight, but it's kind of like a long story. It's a long build up, and <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It, uh, I'm thinking. Okay, well. Then tell me, tell me about if it's not this. Tell me about uh, about the goodbye moment. Yeah, that's it. That's kind of it. That's the one I was thinking of. Wasn't what? that in Irvine? That was. That okay. was at UCI. Okay. Yeah. This was. Uh, that's just so trippy to me. Yeah. That's my old yeah, yeah. stomping grounds again. Yeah. Yeah. That was at the Brent Event Center. Oh, it's so weird. Okay. So uh, let me see if I can just quickly. Oh man. Your dude had left. Right. Lead singer guy, etc. Dude, this, this is gonna take a while. I'm not gonna. If no, we I'm not go gonna there. This is a long story, I'm not man. Do a long story. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. Yeah. This is a long. Story. It's a long story. Okay. But there is a moment there, there is where a moment, yeah. you are front and center, and it's like is it's like the last big show. So. I mean, okay. it's got it's got like high drama, like high drama, high drama, high drama. Okay. Yeah. People the are like, of, oh okay, man, so Plank Eye. What's going on with Plank Eye? So I had written a song called Goodbye, which was ended up getting recorded. It's on a Plank Eye record called Relocation, which is a record that to this day I'm proud of. There's some songs that I think are some duds, but I think there's some some like four or five songs that I'm like, yeah, I'm proud Solid. of that. I'm proud of that song Solid. still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Goodbye was a song that I wrote. I wrote that song in about 30 minutes, and it was probably the most successful Plank Eye song ever. Um it's still people still it's weird right it's just it's just one of those songs so anyways it just came to me like that Mm -hmm. and um our drummer was gonna leave it was his last show and then we decided to like maybe play that song it wasn't written for him it Mm. was just something that i wrote but um we thought yeah we'll play a song for him and and our scott who was the singer at the time was gonna play drums but the night before scott left the band he quit (laughs) randomly so the next morning we have this show. The night before we played a show in Northern California somewhere at a place that was like the Lord's Gym. It was the <laughs> weirdest thing ever. <laughs> it was so bizarre. Yeah. Um, and then so we drive through the night. Meanwhile, uh, Scott quits. So the next morning I just said to Luis, like, look, let's just play the show with Scott. It's no big deal. We got this huge show. It was like a – I forget what it was called. It was – Anyways, it was at the Brent Event Center. It was packed. And um, there was a bunch of other bands. It was like an all-day thing. And we were one of the headliners. And um, Luis was like, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doing it, right? Like, he's like, if you want to play the show, we can do it. But I'm not, we're not, we're not going to, like, just cave. Like, Luis mm-hmm. is just principal. Yeah. And I was like, are you crazy? And he's like, well, let's not play then. And so whatever whatever happened, we decided to just do it, which is the bizarrest thing ever. But Luis and I had written a lot of the songs, most of the songs, so we knew them already. We had written them on our guitars and then introduced them to the band. So we got into, so we we like played the show and it was a disaster. And by this time, everybody's like, what is going on here? So you can right? feel the crowds like, what's happening? Yeah, there's, like news spread quickly. There's no, there's no there's Scott, Scott, right? And then me and Luis are playing, singing the song, the respective songs that we had written, and it was rough and it was awful and it was weird. I don't know. I don't even know how we did it. You just I kept going. We it was just. I don't. We just did it. I don't know why. It, there must have been some kind of like yeah, yeah. punk rock. Like okay, let's go. You this know. How, yeah. Um, and then so then I ended up playing goodbye by myself. And there's this moment where it, I just, there's this moment where, yeah, you scream this, the bridge is screamed and, and I just went for it. And it was the most powerful musical moment of my life. And 
from what people say, it was like the crowd just like got Benny Hinn, you know, <laughs> right? Like, like it was just this like, whoa, yeah. like, and, and, and something happened too, where like all of this tension and confusion and whatever just came out as well. I don't even know. I wish that it was, I wish I could see it. When the song was over, I went into the dressing room, like walked off stage, went to the dressing room, which was like the, you know, boys basketball locker room, or whatever, fell on the floor and just started bawling, wow. like weeping. Yeah. And it was this weird cathartic yeah. moment that all this stuff just kind of came together. And then the, like the next Monday we went on tour and we had, we already had a backup drummer and a guy from a band called the prayer chain named Wayne Everett. And he was like, we go to pick him up and we're like, Oh, by the way, it's just me, you and Luis. And he's like, cool, let's go rock and roll. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we drove to Ohio. <laughs> and by the time we get out of the van in Ohio, uh, I remember getting out of a maroon van and like within minutes, some kids are like, what, what's going on? We it, heard. Th- yeah, they heard. Wow. And this is, this is, you know, this is pre smartphone. Yeah. I was going to say, there's no And cell I thought, phone, oh man, no. this is going to be a summer. <laughs> yeah. So was it like a farewell tour then? It, it no, was, it wasn't. It wasn't a farewell tour. We stuff. ended up putting out two more records. Yeah. <laughs> we had debts to pay, man. That's, That's right. part of the reason. The bills, man. We had all these obligations to all these festivals and we had a huge amount of debt. And I was like, well, let's go. Let's just pay this baby down. Work it off. Wow. Yep. Wow. Wow, a moment. a moment. It was a moment. It was a moment. I'm thankful for the moment. Is it weird to have a life that is so different from that now? I mean, you're a father, husband, you got three kids. You're, uh, I mean, on the the edge of the door's edge of the PhD finally being done. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you're teaching history and philosophy at a little Christian school in Newport Beach. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, is this like whiplash? Like, how do you like? Wait, I what mean, do you mean by whiplash? Just like, I mean, touring musician, like going all these these moments. Well, it's been a long time, you know. Rush. So, so it's been a while that it's yeah. it's changed. But I did. I went. And, I mean, I still do music, and I still put out other records under a different name. I was gonna say, so you and your wife. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, over the years, what happened when I left Plank Eyes, I had to start from scratch, and for a long time, I felt very behind. Right, so all my friends had logged in five to eight years of school and right w- work and i come in and i just was like what am i gonna do and i just became a bus boy hmm. and i was a bus boy at a restaurant called christie's what right down the street from my apartment when where beth and i lived and uh at that time i don't know what it's like now but i was the only white bus boy and um it was me and a bunch of mexican dudes and salvadorians and um, and, uh, I, I was the bus boy with them and I mopped the floors at the end of the night with them and I cleaned the, and I cleaned the bathrooms with them and they loved me <laughs> and I loved them and I had all the nicknames and it was a really, I started from, from scratch and I, I, uh, it was a very, very shaping time for me because I told my wife when, I asked her to marry me. I said, look, I, I can't promise you money, but I promise you I'll always work. And so here I go from having people adore me uh, and m- making a living off of driving around the country and playing shows. I mean, it wasn't an extravagant living, but I was able to make a living. Yeah. And then to being a nameless, faceless person that gave people their water and their bread and mop floors and mm. um, and just my wife gained respect for me for my word at that time and uh and it was humbling i mean it was humbling i i had i i that's not the trajectory of my life that i was expecting you know right and so i just had to reboot and rethink and um that's what i did have you found because identity stuff for guys is so often tied up in what you do yeah right and you in part lived dreams so many had to be able to make a living off of your music. Yeah. You continue to uh, make music that is successful. Um, but this, this total reboot and this whole, like did that loosen 
sort of where you were willing to put your identity? Did that make your relationship with the Lord become something that you think was more resilient and less bound to a particular circumstance? Or or would you just say that you had to sort of fight the same battles anybody else would with, okay, I, who am I as a man? i got to be able to support my family. i got to be able to do these things. I'm a hard worker, starting over, trying to catch up. Um, have you, has that been a struggle at all? I mean, so many guys, uh, Brooks came out with the book, uh, with the second mountain. Um, I don't oh, know if you yeah. read that, but yeah, yeah. And it was, it's like the eulogy virtues and the, yeah. Well, that, he, that he was one, describing, that, he was describing how like in, in the old world, like the first mountain is like, yeah, your you resume, know, college career, resume, yeah, yeah. right. All that kind of stuff. Uh, but we're in a time in which people are like barely even getting to the job part because it's like gig economy. People are having, mm. so when I see a lot of young guys struggling to walk with the Lord, it's, it's also just because they're struggling to like figure out how to be a person in their 20s and 30s because it's such an unstable environment. There aren't careers. There aren't stable long-term jobs that are reliable for many people. Mm. And so like a guy's identity can kind of always be like in the meat grinder, like just regularly destabilized, regularly. And so, you know, even if a guy gets married, it's like, Nothing, maybe nothing else is stable and that puts pressure on the marriage and where the finances are. I just see so many people in their 30s, guys in their 30s, just so struggling to make the turn, struggling to make the turn to like a settled form of adulthood with the Lord that isn't super vulnerable um, and at the at the edge of like just sort of disappearing. You know, I just feel like it's such a vulnerability for guys uh, in our age bracket because it's just a hard, there's the markers of like, okay, now you do this and now you do this, like are kind of dissolved a little bit. Mm. I mean, you had such an unconventional way of sort of going through some of those phases, right? Um, was it hard to like, as a guy to just sort of chart a path there? Or were you, was it pretty clear from the Lord each step? Like, No, what? nothing was clear. Okay. There, I, I think really, this probably doesn't answer your question, but I think what was exposed for me was how entitled I was, mm. right? Like, it was humbling for me. It was hard for me to be a busboy. I was, you know, I was like this, you know, wait a minute. I, I make minimum wage, and and I remember one night, I remember one night I came home with like 40 bucks in tips, and I lost my mind. I was like, Beth, I made 40 bucks tonight. Like, I was so happy. Mm -hmm. But I think that um, for me, that the, the hard part was, um, I think that I realized that I had this idea of the trajectory of my life that was definitely shattered and definitely questioned. And I think that without realizing it, I had this kind of um, almost like, bad theological view that there's a natural progression and there's also like God God is gonna you know these are the things that I'm supposed to do and God's gonna make a way mm. and there's almost like this sense of even though I've always been a hard worker I think there's also a sense where I thought that things would be given to me in a certain respect like you're kind of destined for this right like uh, and so no, you have to, you have to work. Um, so I think that like the fact that, you know, in certain respects, in certain respects, I was a quote unquote successful musician in the sense that I could live off of it and make a living and people knew who I was. Um, you know, I don't think it was that many people, but whatever. Um, there was some recognition. I think that, um, that I thought that it would, you know, that like I had this idea that because there was this almost like this destiny or, you know, that God had made me to be this person and that's going to happen. And it just doesn't work that way. You mm. got to, you got to dig, you know, you got to dig and people know that. Um, and I also think that uh, it was good for me because I was my, I, the, I was, those illusions were shattered. I realized that, um, I, I had to be humbled, and it wasn't as if I was arrogant, but there was probably this internal um, confidence or expectation that was false that I was that I that I was living into. I don't even know if this is making sense, yeah, but yeah, yeah. that it was shattered, and it was um, and it was and I had to be humbled, and I was humbled, and 
and that was a good thing. Did I struggle with my identity as a man? Yes, but I think I think all guys do, right? I mean, that's just what it, I think. That's part well, of I, guess, I think that's part you, of the curse. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I mean, the curse is on our work. Yeah. Do you think that part of that being shattered and humbled? I mean, obviously that was a form of grace as well, right? Yes, for sure. And maybe maybe it's that for some of us it's hard to accept that moment or or we just keep pushing like that moment might not come. Like, well, maybe next time or maybe this new thing. Um, I guess I I would ask, like, you have a pastoral heart. Um, How would you encourage a young guy who knows the Lord, um, maybe married, maybe thinking about marriage, you know, wants to build a real life, um, like what, what is the most important thing about, about building an honest life like that? Because you, you said you're a hard worker, but it wasn't that. It wasn't just like, oh, and then the Lord will automatically, because you did this, or, you know. Yeah. Um, what would you say to encourage young guys in their 20s and 30s who, who just l- want to live a good life with the Lord, who just want to live a life that at the end of there's, it, people there, would say, y- you honored God and you were... Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of lives, and most lives, um, there's a lot of uh, unsung heroes in the world that, uh, that are not recognized, but that God recognizes and that did live a life of honoring God and a life of significance, right? They, they're, uh, There's so many unsung heroes, right? I heard some story about, so for example, um, and I'm going to get all the metrics wrong, so I'll say this roughly, but when we had the financial crisis in 2008, mm. there were a lot of people that strategically defaulted, meaning, look, I could technically pay, I could technically pay my mortgage, but my house is under, it's not worth it to me, so I'm going to strategically default, right? And a lot of people did that. They, they really technically could have still, they weren't in the situation where they couldn't pay their mortgage, right? But there was, but there was a lot of people that were like, look, I have this mortgage. My house is not, is, is not worth what I bought for it. I'm under, but I can still pay this, this monthly pay, fee, um, even though... I'm pay, I'm overpaying at this point. I forget, there were some kind of numbers and no one will know, but we were really really close from it getting way 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 worse, mm-hmm. right? And it had more people strategically defaulted. Th- those that could have kept paying um but didn't. Uh the financial crisis would have been more significant than it was. So, all that to say, there are a lot of people in this world that are unsung heroes mm. that kept their word and paid what they what they signed the papers to pay because they could even though it would hurt them and those people did um, a good for the country and the world that they will never be recognized for mm. so i say that because um, thank god for whoever those men and women were that had the the character to stick it out as, as with respect to work, yeah, uh, everybody in America wants to be famous, and it's it's exhausting, right? You want to be recognized, and that's I get I get it. There's a we like to be recognized. I mean, look, the fact that you're asked me to be on a podcast mm. is flattering to me. Like, mm. why? Who 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 wants? To, who? Wow, somebody wants to hear from me. Wow, that's great. Hey, I like world, that. Man. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. But so yeah, there's a lot of work that um, that goes unrecognized and you might not find your identity in it but you're doing something that is honoring to god and also you have the self-respect and the dignity of work Mm. like our audio man right here zach leach himself yeah nobody's given him any any credit any (sighs) praise right but if it weren't for his work I think I told him this, the other day I was going to buy him lunch, and I, I totally forgot to buy him yeah, lunch. Yeah, you need to He's buy a mistake. My buy a mistake. Because, yeah, oh, a couple. Okay. Yeah. So, so look, <laughs> yeah, Zach is, who knows? No, so whoever, some some people, I've benefited from this podcast in the past, but no one's singing Zach's praises. But well, no, he's, I, now we are, yeah. but I'm just I'm just giving an example, right? There no, are a lot of people it, that underwrite it. and hold up the world. Yes. And Amen. as far as as Amen. far as Christian men, like like 
for no matter what, dudes are going to struggle with their identity in the workplace. Like, do, do I? I still do, mm. right? Do I think, oh, yeah, I nailed it, got it. I feel great <laughs> about my identity and what I've achieved as a man. I don't think so. Um, that's a struggle, but obviously, who we are is more important than where we're going, mm. right? Who we are to to people that we interact with. That's in our power. That's in our control. We can be the fragrance of Christ to those who are perishing or who are down or even just whatever. We have that option. We have that choice. Notice Paul uses very mundane things, whether you eat or drink, do Mm. for the glory of God. Mm. You can do mundane things and do things that are significant, Mm. right? So our significance is encouched on magnitude of externalities or whatever, our significance is, was this done in love? And mm. what did was this work, whatever it is, done in such a way that the Father is pleased? Something like that. Amen. Last word, uh, as a father, to maybe future fathers or young fathers, what do you think is... is uh, maybe a word of encouragement or just a word of, I don't know. I mean, like of celebration. I mean, like the way you talk about your kids is, is awesome and it's refreshing. And, uh, you know, we slid into a trope culturally for so long where it's like, uh, he's your old battle axe and here come the kid, you know, everybody's, yeah. everybody's in my way. You know, I just need my beer and I only watch the football game <laughs> go away. Um, Give me a word, a closing word about being a dad. What does being a dad mean to you at the end of the day? You, the story you told about Simon's birth captures so much. Your kids are, this is several years now. You, you got three kids. Mm-hmm. You got a boy, two girls? Correct. And they're all kind of getting older right in front of your face before you know it, et cetera. Yeah. Where are you at as a dad right now? Where is your heart as a father? What's a, what's a good word about being a father in the season that you find yourself? Uh, gratitude. Hmm. Yeah. Um, that I, I, I don't know that this is a word to fathers, but I can only say that um, the area in my life in which I experience the most joy and the most gratitude is in the presence of my children. Now, they obviously also bring drive you crazy and frustrate <laughs> you too. But um, there are moments like just yesterday, I was taking a quick bike bike ride around the block with my two daughters and my littlest one. I'm just watching her bike, and for whatever reason, it's ineffable. Um, and it's you know obviously this happens with your own children, but like machine gun praise <laughs> is like flying out of my head like. <laughs> up to the heavens like thank you god thank you god thank you god like just total machine gun praise like if you could see what is going out of my brain up to the heavens it's a machine gun of thank of gratitude and awe and thankfulness that he made these creatures mm. and there's all this but for whatever reason when they're your kids you have this crazy love for them and you're just their existence is miraculous it happens every single day, mm-hmm. right? And it's at, at some level the most garden variety, mundane thing in the world. But something happens when, where with my children, it's like, oh, oh yeah, God exists, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So like Planaga, for example, yeah, yeah, has yeah. this idea of That's the census divinitatis, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that right. So that that he believes that. I mean, he takes it from Calvin, right? But he believes, Planaga says that, look, we have this sense of divinity, this sense of divinitatis that he puts within the the cate- uh, the range of our epistemic faculties, right? We have perception and memory, and these are the ways that we know things, that we garner knowledge. And then he says, oh, by the way, there's also this thing called the sensus divinitatis that in certain circumstances, that will be triggered, so if I ask you, what did you have for breakfast this morning, your faculty of memory will be triggered, mm-hmm. and you'll say, a bagel with cream cheese. <laughs> There's also circumstances that trigger the sense of sensus divinitatis, and you see the starry skies or whatever, and 
the census is is triggered and you and you and you god exists and the census divinitatis is triggered in spades in moments when i watch my kids um in certain moments and i don't know how else to explain it but it's this it's this weird quote-unquote argument for the existence of god for me Hmm. i don't know amen and amen Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Balmer, thanks so much, brother, for being here, taking the time with us, telling us a little bit of your story. Thank you. That's our time, my friends. If you would like to support the podcast, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And if you would like even more content and to become a patron of the podcast, head on over to FromBabylonWithLove.com, click on Newsletter, and sign up there. Until then, many thanks to producer Zach Leach for all the twists and turns, and to Lonesome and Muddy, the only house band that'll survive the apocalypse. This has been From Babylon with Love.